4: In 2004, Talalaleh Edwards, a young father and husband living in Anchorage, Alaska, was accused of killing a one-year-old child who was in his care. TJ was adamant he was innocent. He loved children and was known to be a great father to his own sons.
5: They couldn't bring one person on my behalf to ever say that they saw me be violent, um, a violent guy and would do something to a kid. They even took my two boys from me when this happened.
4: When he went to trial, he was sure the jury would see the truth—that he wouldn't hurt anyone, let alone a child.
5: When they said guilty, I, I was shocked. And what made it real for me was my mom. She started belting out, crying, and I looked back at her, and I just seen her just like getting weak, and just everybody was trying to pick her up. I hate reliving that memory. That was the one memory I was trying to erase, but it's stuck in there. My name is Talalale Edwards Jr. Uh, everybody knows me as TJ. I was incarcerated for 14 years for something I didn't commit, and um, I'm here to tell my story.
4: From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Talalale Edwards. Talalale Edwards Jr., known as TJ, was born in the Samoan Islands on April 17th, 1981, to Salome and Talalale Edwards Sr.
5: We are from the islands of Samoa. My mom was born in Western Samoa, and my dad was from American Samoa. For a while there, it's just been me and my brother Richard, who's a year younger than me, before everybody else came in. <laughs> it was probably like a five- or six-year gap between the next... Set of like it was my two sisters came after me and Richard.
4: Eventually adding up to nine kids in total. Although the family lived in California briefly when TJ was young, they soon went back to the Samoan islands.
5: My dad took us back to the islands so we could learn the culture, the language we speak, and just learn everything about the Samoan culture. And so we stayed there for about four or five years before moving back to California where the rest of my siblings were born.
2: He is like a best friend to me.
4: This is TJ's sister Salome, who's named after their mother. She's six years younger than TJ.
2: I just remember him always being the one that I looked up to. I wrote a few papers on him in school as like the person that um, I look up to the most.
4: After their parents divorced in 1995, T.J., as the oldest, found his role in the family evolving.
5: So I kind of had to play that father figure role, like watching over my other younger siblings, helping out my mom with just for life, because she was just a stay-at-home mom before, you know, her and my dad separated.
4: Salome remembers how T.J. stepped up for the family at the time. She came to confide in her brother about everything in her life.
2: When I wasn't doing so good in school, I would go to him and ask him for help on homework or just anything that I wanted to talk to him about, even if it was me dating someone. Um, He was very patient and also um, always created a safe space for me to go and talk to him about anything I was going through.
4: TJ was only 14 at the time and couldn't help out financially yet. When expenses became too much for his mom, she packed up a car with whatever they could fit and drove herself and her nine kids. From California to Anchorage, Alaska, where she had family. So, what is living in Alaska like?
5: Living in Alaska is um, it's a pretty you know slow motion state. Um, it's pretty uh, mellow. At first, I've never seen snow before, so when we came up here, I was like, "Wow, this is nice." You know, it was awesome for the first I'd say six months until I was like, "All right, I'm, I'm done with the cold." Now.
4: But things were still hard for the family. It was a struggle just to live up in
5: Alaska. We were poor growing up, you know, and we didn't have the finance to uh, to go get us an apartment. You know, we had to live with my auntie and then when we moved up here.
4: Despite the hardships, TJ has fond memories of his childhood.
5: Being with my siblings up here, you know, just all of us out there in the snow and kind of like just enjoying each other's company, you know, just us bonding together and... Being there for each other was like, that was all to me. All I wanted to do was keep the smile on their faces.
4: We
2: were pretty spoiled because of him.
4: Salome remembers TJ taking his siblings everywhere he went, like sports games and their favorite hangout.
2: We always went to Chuck E. Cheese. We went like probably once a week, literally.
4: But life in their part of town was rough.
5: I dropped out of uh, 10th grade because there was a lot of shootings going on, and our family was definitely um, one of those houses that was getting shot at because of uh, you know certain gangs or whatever they call each other, cliques up here, that were going through some, uh, some battles back and forth.
4: The gangs in Anchorage included Samoan street gangs that sometimes fought with Tongan gangs.
5: And they thought that we were involved in that. Me and my siblings, you know, um, they thought we were involved in any of the gang activities, and it wasn't the case. But we were just caught in crossfire of things, and that's what kind of made me and my brothers stepped out of school, like dropped out.
4: TJ says at the time, there was a lot of racism and angerage against Polynesians.
5: Polynesians were getting into uh, altercations with the police and stuff like that at that time. Um, and we were definitely being frowned upon as far as growing up here with the the law uh, against you know the poly community back then and it was difficult to like you know call them for any kind of help because as soon as they pull up and find out oh there's a poly community or a polynesian family then they kind of like turn their backs on us or not even give us the help that we needed. You know what I mean?
4: After TJ dropped out of high school he went on to receive an education with the Alaska youth military program.
5: It was for kids that they're troubled youth or whatever and that didn't graduate but they given this chance to either you go over there to uh, military or you know you'll be able to get your, your
4: diploma that way. At this point TJ also had a girlfriend Leona.
5: And when I went into this uh, youth academy program in 99 come to find out that we were expecting the kid um, later on that year in November, which I had my first son, which is Jante Moses Edwards. So we got married August 14th. i 99, and Jante was born 11, 17, 1999.
4: TJ was 19 at the time. He had been considering a career in the military, but becoming a father put a spin on his plans.
5: It was just one of those things that I, I fell in love with seeing my son being born. I didn't want him to grow up without a father, you know what I mean, being away. So just me and my siblings growing up without our father, that's what really like made me want to stay home with him all the time and, and didn't want to go nowhere. So I ended up not going to the military.
4: Instead, TJ took on two jobs in Anchorage, one at Applebee's and one as a security guard. He and Leona got their own place. In the spring of 2001, TJ and Leona opened their house up to their close friend, Melissa, and her one-year-old son, Derek. Derek was TJ and Leona's godson, so they didn't hesitate when Melissa needed a place to live.
5: We didn't want them to be out there in the streets and not have nowhere to stay, so we had an extra room. And absolutely, I said, sure, why not? She ended up moving in with us, and uh, we started noticing uh, like a pattern. She loves to go out and have fun.
4: Often leaving Derek in TJ's care, but he was fine with
1: that.
5: You know, I, I don't mind watching uh, my godson because him and my son are pretty much, you know, the same age.
4: Melissa and Leona worked together, so when TJ wasn't working and the babysitter was unavailable, TJ took care of both Derek and Jonte. TJ even got certified as a caregiver and learned CPR and other first aid. One day while TJ was watching the boys, he noticed a scratch on the back of Derek's head, and he mentioned it to Melissa.
5: He was like, hey, have you noticed anything wrong with your son's head? Like, and she was like, oh, she had no idea where the scratch came from.
4: Derek had also been sick for a few days. He wasn't eating and was throwing up a lot. Melissa was already planning to bring him to the doctor.
5: So we, we told her, like, well, you, you know, you should probably go and have this looked at, you know, when you go to a doctor. So when he brought Derek back to the house, we asked him, so did you mention anything about the head injury? And she never mentioned it. So we were kind of like stumped, like, why not? Why didn't you tell the doctor whoever was uh, seeing him about, you know, that scratch behind his head?
4: A few days later, on the morning of May 8th, 2001, Melissa left Derek with TJ and Jante while she went to work. Leona had already left the house for the day, too. TJ was alone with the boys.
5: She brought him in the room. He was sort of crying a little bit, and then he stopped crying. And then, you know, we went downstairs. I started cleaning up the house and everything.
4: But soon, TJ noticed Derek wasn't doing well.
5: I noticed him not not responding, or just breathing,
4: period. When TJ picked him up, he saw that Derek's eyes were half open and his fists were clenched. TJ tried blowing air on his face to arouse him, but Derek was not responding.
5: And uh so I immediately I freaked out. I started doing CPR on him and rushed him rushed him to the hospital instead of calling 911.
4: Because TJ still didn't trust the police. I've had issues with calling any kind of authorities or
5: whatever, so My immediate reaction was to make sure that Derek makes it there alive still.
4: This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where they work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. At the hospital, once the doctors took Derek, TJ was left alone to process what had just happened.
1: They
5: uh, went in the back there, and it took forever for them to come tell me what was going on. I was like, sir, can you go in the front? You got some, some cops that want to talk to you and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay. I'm thinking maybe they're going to tell me what's going on.
4: But instead, one of the detectives started questioning him. TJ told the detective everything he knew. He was just cleaning up the house when he noticed Derek struggling to breathe.
5: He's saying, no, something happened. You shook the baby or something. And I'm like, shook the baby? What are you talking about? You know, and I was kind of dumbfounded about the whole situation. Like, why are you accusing me?
4: At 8.55 that night, Derek was taken off ventilator support and died. Doctors had discovered that Derek's brain was bleeding and swollen, but showed no signs of blunt force trauma. Brain bleeding and swelling, bleeding in the eyes, and little or no evidence of external trauma were known at the time as the triad, supposedly telltale signs of SBS, or shaken baby syndrome. Experts at the time claimed these injuries had only three known causes, falls from a three-story building, high-speed motor vehicle crashes, or violent shaking. Because he had been the last adult alone with Derek before his death, TJ immediately became the only suspect.
5: They were, you know, the whole time they were, like, convinced that I did it that morning. You know, like, oh, yeah, look how big he is. That's what the detective was kept drilling to me after he was interview. He was like, TJ, man, look how big you are. Like, if I was a kid and you were over here, like, shaking me, I would, I would be in the same position Derek's in. I'm like,
4: what? Are you a big guy?
5: yeah i was i wouldn't say like a big guy but i mean i was i was 260 at that time um I, w- I was you know pretty athletic and stuff and i didn't really see myself as a as a polynesian like a big you know and that's how they, they look at us you know They're all you guys are pretty big people and so i yeah i was kind of like freaking out like wow they're actually gunning for me now
4: The investigation into Derek's death took nearly six months. During that time, police failed to investigate any other angles besides SBS. In fact, they often disregarded evidence that did not point to SBS. For example, police and doctors ignored the fact that Derek had been sick before his death and was in fact taking multiple medications a doctor had prescribed to address his symptoms. Also, in the weeks before his death... While being babysat by two 12-year-old girls, Derek suffered a fall. The police did not ask the babysitters about this, nor did they follow up on any of his other medical issues. When Derek first got to the hospital that day, doctors also noted that he was doing something called posturing, which is what TJ saw with Derek's clenched fists and bent arms. Posturing is a sign of seizure activity and can also indicate swelling in the brain. But when doctors discovered the brain swelling, they then focused their attention on confirming their suspicions of SBS, ignoring any other possible causes. During the investigation period, TJ and Leona were still in touch with Melissa. She didn't blame TJ for the death of her son and in fact had told that to the police.
5: She said, yes, I went to the cops and I told him that you didn't do it. You know, I know you didn't do it. You would never do something like this to my son. Because she knew, like, I took care of her son better than she's ever done. You know what I mean? I've always been there to bathe him. And, you know, whenever she's too tired to, to care for him or whatnot. And plus, you know, Derek and my son, like, we're almost the same age. And they play with each other. So when she made that statement that she knew that she knew I didn't do nothing to her son to cause this harm against Derek. They looked at her as a suspect. They didn't turn her, it was say, well, it's easy, you're TJ now. If you're saying that TJ didn't do it, then you're the one. And so that's when she retracted her statement and made another statement.
3: On
4: October 10th, 2001, TJ was working one of his jobs when the police showed up.
5: There is like seven patrol cars that came on base I didn't know what was going on. I'd seen my boss walking with a whole bunch of guys behind him. Those were the detectives that were coming to to apprehend me for the charge of uh, the Shaking Baby Syndrome case.
4: TJ was arrested and charged with manslaughter and second-degree murder. Salome was shocked when she found out. She remembers thinking about her youngest sister, who is 13 years younger than TJ.
2: My mom left my dad when she was only a week old. So TJ was literally like her father growing up. And I seen him like change her diapers, you know, um, literally everything. So it was hard to, it was hard to even accept that's what they were charging him with or arresting him for because that's just not what
4: I could ever imagine him doing. In addition to the charges, TJ was hit with a double whammy.
5: They uh, they even took my two boys from me when this happened.
4: By this time, Leona had given birth to their second son, Javen.
5: Um, they said I couldn't be around my kids until further investigation. And you know when they they took my kids from us, I couldn't believe it. I just felt like it was a nightmare. I just I still remember that day like vividly right now. And that's why I was like, man, I just hated that
4: feeling. TJ's trial started two and a half years later in March of 2004. The prosecutor was Adrian Bachman and the case against TJ was thin.
5: They couldn't bring one person on my behalf to ever say that they saw me be violent, a violent guy and would do something to this, you know, to a kid.
4: The prosecution's entire case rested solely on the idea that only violently shaking a baby could cause the symptoms Derek had and that the injuries could have only happened within a few hours of Derek's death when only TJ was home with him.
6: The testimony at trial was pretty consistent with if these things Three symptoms show up. It's um, child abuse and shaken baby, and it has to have happened within the last couple of hours.
4: This is Bill Oberly. He's the executive legal director of the Alaska Innocence Project. He says this was pretty much the only evidence presented at trial.
6: No signs on Derek of any fresh injuries, no signs that he was picked up and held tightly and shaken, no neck injuries. There was nothing presented that would support, um, provide physical evidence of the the allegations they were making.
4: However, one neighbor did testify to hearing a noise like furniture dropping, quote, loud enough that it shook the ceiling. The prosecution suggested this was TJ slamming Derek on the floor. So how did the defense respond?
6: That was um, much of the defense was that there was no indication of any fresh injuries.
4: TJ's attorney was Rex Butler.
6: The defense called one expert witness, Dr. Janice Ophoven, who was a forensic pathologist.
4: Dr. Oppoven testified that there were indications of iron deposits in Derek's brain.
6: When blood starts to decompose after bleeding, like in the brain, iron is formed. And so the presence of iron in Derek's brain meant that the injury he suffered would have been five to seven days old.
4: But that wasn't enough reasonable doubt for the jury. After three days of deliberations on April 1st, 2004, TJ was convicted of second degree murder.
5: I didn't think it was real because I got convicted on April Fool's Day. When they said guilty, I looked at my attorney and I was like, did they just say guilty? I was shocked. And what made it real for me that I knew that they said guilty was my mom. She started belting out crying. And I looked back at her and I just seen her just like getting weak and just everybody was trying to pick her up. And I just started like breaking down. I can't believe it. It didn't finally hit me until they closed the door after escorting me back where they hold people. <sighs> it was tough. It, it was. I hate reliving that memory. That was the one memory I was trying to erase, but it, it's it's stuck in there.
4: Twenty-two-year-old TJ was sentenced to twenty years in prison, the minimum sentence at the time.
5: First, it was a scary, you know, just a scary just being incarcerated. You see a lot of movies about prison, and you know for me to actually be there and and yeah i didn't I didn't want to do nothing. I didn't even eat their food for a whole year. I started questioning that, man you know, what did I go wrong, and you know, with my life, you know there was a lot of questions going through my head, and I didn't know what to do.
0: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
4: Leona brought their kids to CTJ regularly. But as his years in prison went on, TJ's relationship with Leona deteriorated.
5: I didn't blame her for it, you know what I mean? It gets lonely out there for people. Um, of course, she has needs and wants, stuff like that, that need to be met, and she ended up going her separate way. And it was tough to even explain it to my kids, but they knew what was going on. Like in some of our visits, we'll start kissing and hugging each other, and then as we started getting years in, they noticing us just not even doing that. I'm I'm doing that with my my kids. I'm hugging them, and but they started noticing that we're not holding hands in the visiting room. It was a uh, it was definitely tough.
4: TJ and Leona divorced in 2010, but in the middle of that, TJ got some good news. His sister Salome told him she was engaged.
2: The reason why I even seen potential in my husband is because he reminded me so much of my brother. He embodies everything that I could say that I would be looking for in a man.
4: But Salome told her fiancé that they couldn't get married until TJ was out. She had always dreamed of having her big brother walk her down the aisle.
2: And because of that, we were waiting for his appeals. They were getting denied.
4: After about five years, TJ told her not to wait any longer.
2: He called me and he said... I don't know why you keep putting your life on hold. You should go ahead and marry him. And I didn't want to because I wanted him to be there. But because he was like, all my appeals are getting denied. I don't think I'm going to get out anytime soon. So stop putting your life on hold for me. And that was like the hardest thing for me to um, accept. And I just remember crying and telling him I didn't want to. But I did eventually get married and he wasn't there. And it was like a, it was like I was trying to be happy but at the same time there was a big part of me that was missing.
4: Life was passing TJ by as he sat in prison.
5: All I was trying to do was get out as soon as I could, like going and hitting the law library, learning about my case and just seeing what kind of what else I can do to help get me out sooner. And so that's what that about the Alaska Innocence Project.
4: he immediately reached out to tell them about his case. And in 2011, he got a letter back from Bill Oberly.
5: And he's willing to take over my case and give it a shot, you know, give me a second chance at going to courts. I was like, wow. I remember calling my, my family up and just in tears, just of happiness. Like, oh, wow, this is the second chance that I've always wanted. I pray for, I look forward to it, you know what I mean? So just to know that, I do have a fighting chance to get out.
6: We at the Alaska Innocence Project and all the innocence projects in America take their jobs really seriously. And we have to be convinced that our client is innocent before we are willing to go forward. And that is my feeling about T.J. Edwards, that I have no doubt that he is innocent. 2011 was when the um, shaken baby syndrome belief was starting to be challenged in a fairly strong degree. And as I dug deeper into TJ's case, two things became clear to me. One, I met TJ and realized what kind of individual he was, and that on one level, convinced me that he could not have done what he was accused of doing or convicted of doing. And secondly, I looked into the facts of the case as it related to shaken baby syndrome and realized that the challenges that were being put forward on shaken baby cases all pretty much applied to TJ's case.
4: Today, experts agree that there can be other explanations for the triad, like seizures or even a shortfall. Bill says that Derek's strange sickness and the symptoms days before he died clearly showed something else was going on with him, and that investigators should have considered this.
6: The basis of the conviction, the medical, legal testimony that was the basis of the conviction, can no longer support the conviction. And therefore, it is a wrongful conviction and needs to be overturned.
4: For years, Bill worked on preparing TJ's appeal, but in 2015, 20 years after he was first incarcerated, TJ was released on parole. He completed his parole term in the summer of 2021. Although TJ is no longer a prisoner of the state, he is still labeled a convicted baby killer.
5: I'm somewhat free. I'm still with my name not cleared. That's how I look at it. I'm still incarcerated. Still, you know what I mean? Until everything is exhausted and get cleared from the system. That's why. I look at being free.
4: Meanwhile, TJ is trying to adjust to life outside prison.
5: I ain't gonna lie, this whole incarceration, it definitely I lost like my joy in life uh, as far as like all the fun things I used to love. I used to love Christmas. I used to love birthdays. I used to love anniversaries. I used to love like just celebration, right? I, when I got out, I feel like if I was to be celebrated and like, happy, like you'll get taken away from me, just like that. If I have too much fun, it's going to get taken away from me. And that's what incarceration did for me. In
4: 2018, Bill filed a post-conviction challenge to TJ's conviction, stating that the changes in forensic evidence invalidate the conviction. They are still in litigation.
6: The fact that a shortfall cannot Cause of these injuries is no longer valid testimony. How many doctors do you need to, to come forward and say that?
4: TJ is now working at an oil field in the North Slope borough in Alaska and is saving to buy a home for his family. He's remarried to a woman named Morgan, is a father to her children, Caden and Victoria, and of course, Continues to have a relationship with both of his sons from his first marriage. His family is planning to move to California to be closer to Salome, who is ecstatic her best friend is out of prison.
2: What I love about him, too, is that even if he's in a shower or doing something, he always picks up. So it's great to be able to have that communication and for me to be able to call him instead of having to wait until he's available. I was just laughing about this the other day because, because of him, I FaceTime a lot now. TJ is very much, he doesn't like calling just on the phone. He wants to FaceTime all the time.
4: TJ says now that he's out, he wants to continue to mentor kids like he used to do his own siblings, and as he did in prison.
5: I felt like I was a therapist in there, you know, giving out advices. And and some of the people I have relations with now, When I get out, they're the reason I'm up here on the slope now, you know, having a good job up here. I feel like my work here in Alaska is not done as far as like, you know, wanting to go out here and speaking to some of the youth up here and just share my story, you know, with them. This could happen to you. You know, if you're you're thinking you got a perfect life going and, and a snap of a finger, you're just on the other side now.
4: To help support the Alaska Innocence Project, go to alaskainnocenceproject.org or check out the links in our bio. Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Gwen Graham.
0: thing I know uh, the police are coming down to talk to me. They said, your ex-girlfriend said that you killed somebody at an nursing home. And I laughed at him. I said, I can't believe you came down here for that bullshit. But then when they charged me with, uh, I think, four more, that's when I started losing
4: it. Thanks for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea. Producer, Lila Robinson and story editor, Sonia Paul. The show is edited and mixed by Annie Chelsea, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1.
1: From BBC Radio 4.